0: This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Dear Father in Heaven, we've gathered again, and uh, the evidence here is that we're seeking after you. I pray, Lord, that you will honor your promise. Where we gather in your name, you are in our midst. If we draw near to you, you are drawing near to us. If we search for you with all of our hearts, we'll find you. And now, Lord, and through this weekend, we have a lot of people, a lot of young people we've gathered together because we're seeking after you. Help us, Lord, to uh, do what the disciples did and help us to find what they found. Uh, There's no greater blessing than you could give us, Lord, than the Holy Spirit. And as we're even praying for that right now, uh, we're living in such a godless age. We're just so unworthy to receive it. But we're not coming because we believe we're worthy. We're coming because we're trusting in the worthiness of Jesus. We're trusting in his merits and his grace. I pray that, uh, as you've done before, you'll forgive the sins of the one who's going to speak and that you will uh, be the one who really is heard. And so touch our hearts, Lord, and help us to learn that it is possible through Christ to have revolutionary lives, spirit-filled lives. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, some of what I'll be sharing with you is actually a little backwards. Um, I'm going to be talking now about the, the possibility for you to experience victory in the Christian life. And I don't know about you, but my biggest problem is sin. In fact, the whole plan of salvation revolves around sin and salvation. This is what our struggle is. And it is possible, through the power of the Holy Spirit, for you to be a new creature. You know the promise of that new covenant I'll write my law in your hearts and in your minds. Old things are passed away, all things become new that God gives us a supernatural power that's outside of ourselves and you basically are born again. You become a different person. And we all need that new birth. Curious, how many of you were raised in a Christian home? That's good. There's great advantages to that. There are some liabilities. One liability is that you can grow up with the illusion that being raised in a Christian home makes you a Christian. Or that by virtue of being born in a Christian home, that's the same thing as being born again, that you're born, born again. That's not true. You may be born in a Christian home, but that doesn't mean you're born, born again. You all must experience the new birth. God has no grandchildren. We all need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. That goes for me, that goes for Pastor Doug's kids, and goes for my grandkids. Yes, we have six grandchildren. So all of us need to have a personal relationship with him. And I'd like to begin with a quote from the book Desire of Ages. You've heard this before. There is no limit to the usefulness of one. Who, by putting self aside, makes room for the working of the Holy Spirit upon his heart and lives a life wholly consecrated to God. There is no limit, unlimited usefulness for that person who puts self aside. There's the battle. I don't know about you, but my, my big problem is Doug Batchelor. Maybe your problem is Doug Bachelor too. I don't know. <laughs> but I'm assuming your problem is You. And um, just laying self aside, I've discovered that even in my conversation with people, someone will tell me something amazing that happens to them, and automatically my mind goes, I think I've got an amazing story that can compete with that amazing story. And at the heart of that is just another kind of selfishness. Or someone will tell me about some special event, and I'll think, how come I wasn't invited? And just automatically in my thinking, my mind, it's like the needle turning to the pole. Automatically, without the Holy Spirit, all of your thinking and function, it's just always me, 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 me. And it takes a supernatural power for us to get back to where Adam was before sin. Adam was created with a nature where love for God was natural for him. Whereas for us, we are not born with that natural desire to love God and to serve Him. We're born selfish. And it's a miracle of God when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and gives us that outside power, makes us do something beyond ourselves. There's no limit, one more time, I haven't finished the quote yet. Oh, by the way, Desire of Ages 2.50, no limit to the usefulness of one who by putting self aside makes room for the working of the Holy Spirit upon his heart and lives a life wholly consecrated to God. If men will be endued with the necessary discipline without complaining or fainting by the way, God will teach them hour by hour and day by day. He longs to reveal His grace. If His people will remove obstructions... Oh, wait a second. There's something we need to do? If His people will remove obstructions, He will pour forth the waters of salvation in abundant streams through the human channels. If men... Humbled in life, were encouraged to do all the good they can do. If restraining hands were not laid upon them to repress their zeal, there would be a hundred workers for Christ where now there is but one. So not only will God do great things for any one person, you'll see evangelism explode. How could twelve men, the apostles namely, turn the world upside down in one generation? Because they were filled with the Holy Spirit and consumed by love for Christ. Furthermore, they were not thinking about the here and now, they were living lives with the perspective of eternity. It makes a big difference when you think about what's going to really last. I wrote this little book, I don't know if you ever saw the sharing book for last year, it's called Who Do You Think You Are? Um, And I've got an illustration in there about a shopping spree. I guess I can walk away from here, And my microphone works before they were using both microphones. Any of you ever heard about a shopping spree where you win at this, this market or some store and they say, all right, for 30 minutes you get to run up and down the aisles and whatever you can fit in as many shopping carts as you could push to the checkout, you get to keep. Have you, have you ever fantasized that you might get something like that? And uh, Now, if you were going to do that, if you were running up and down the aisles... What would you put in your cart? Of course, it depends on what store you're at. All right, let's just pretend we're at Walmart because most of us are acquainted with that. Would you go and get popcorn and put it, they actually sell that, and put it in your cart? Uh, Would you buy pillows that are going to fill up your cart right away with Dacron fibers? you know where I would go? I'd go to the computer section and I would fill my cart with like memory and uh, jump drives. They're very small and they're very expensive. Isn't that what you want to do? Because then you could cash it out later. You'd want to get as much as you could get of the valuable small things. Put it in your cart. But I've seen it before where somebody wins at a supermarket, it's not Walmart. And so they go rip-snorting up and down the aisles of the supermarket with their shopping cart, and they're throwing just like the most expensive cuts of meat and and hors d'oeuvres and everything like that, caviar, all the expensive foods they can in their cart so they can uh, check out before the buzzer rings and they're out of time. Many young people make the mistake of living their lives thinking like, they're on some brief shopping spree through a supermarket. You know how many times young people will say to me, Pastor Doug, I, I want to be a Christian, I want to go to heaven, and uh, I want to serve Jesus, but I want to have fun too. And maybe if I take a couple years and the kind of things you'll hear is, find out what's out there. I've got to discover some things for myself. And um, really that's code for, I'm going to go sin and have fun for a little while. And then when I get my fill of sin, then I'll say, all right, well, I've tasted everything and done everything and now I'll repent because God's merciful. He's got to take me back. And then I'll go serve Him. That is extremely lethal. It's very dangerous thinking because I can't tell you how many people think to themselves, I'm going to go out there in the world just to figure out what's going on, try sin, and then uh, you know, when I'm tired of it, then I'll come back And they get to where, one, they lose their capacity to come back. Because repentance is a gift. They become addicted to any variety of sins and they're enslaved by it. They mar and scar their consciences almost irreparably. Their mind changes. Some young people say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm solid, I'm grounded in my faith. And then they go to a secular university where they're bombarded with paganistic thinking. And they think they can stand up to it because they have confidence in their good-rooted Christian foundation. And well, i tell you, some of those professors at these universities, they, just, they delight in sharpening and honing their skills on undermining the faith of Christians. They're very shrewd. And then they come out beginning to wonder if there even is a God. So going out in the world and thinking you can play with the devil, and then come away whenever you feel like it's very dangerous. But back to the illustration. What leads to that thinking is the idea that you've got 30 minutes with your shopping cart, and you're really thinking like a turnip. You've got redwood trees that grow for thousands of years. But if you want to make yourself think you're a successful gardener, plant radishes or turnips. Two weeks, you'll have a crop. Short term. When you think, I want to have sin now, you're thinking short term. For a Christian, you've got to think in the long term perspective. I plan on living forever. Right now, this is the beginning of eternity. When does the kingdom of God begin? What was the first thing that Jesus said when he started preaching? The kingdom of heaven will come in 2,000 years? Or did he say the kingdom of heaven is at hand? John the Baptist started saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the spiritual kingdom of God, of Jesus reigning, of your being a citizen in that kingdom, of your being born again, when does that begin? Eternity can begin eternal life. Does eternal life begin when you get your new body? Or can we have eternal life now? This is really important. I'm hoping, I know it's after lunch. But this is really important. Can you have eternal life now? You can. So your eternity begins now. But wait, Pastor Doug, what if I die? Christians do not die. Christians go to sleep. And they wake up with a glorified body. And so that to me is very exciting to think you can have the gift of eternal life right now. You know how we receive the Holy Spirit in victory is by faith. But God, and I'm going to get letters on this and people are going to misunderstand, but I I need to tell you, you've got a role to play. That's right. There's something we need to do to be be filled with the Holy Spirit. Everybody has a role to play. Let me give you Signs of the Times, February 14, 1878. The divine power combined with human effort will give to all perfect and entire victory. Divine power combined with what? Human effort. Now, it might even mean effort in believing, but that's an effort. Jesus said, this is the work you need to do to believe. How many remember the story? Go in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. I want to look at this with you real quick to illustrate my point in mark chapter 6 so oh, 45 this is after jesus multiplies the loaves and the fish and he feeds everybody there in mark chapter 5 verse 32 i want you to go to verse 45 they want to take him by force and make him a king probably at the urging of judas immediately he made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side of bethsaida he is going to disperse the crowd who's trying to coronate him. He sends away his disciples so they won't get caught up in it. He said, you guys get out of here. Don't get any ideas. This is not the kingdom I'm talking about. Sends them across the sea. He said, I'll catch up with you. Doesn't tell them how, but they're, they obey him. He sent them away. He departed to a mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw them during his prayer. The Holy Spirit reveals to them that they are out in the middle of the ocean and they are straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. By the way, this story is also in John chapter 6, verse 1 through 14. He saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, so they're out in the middle of the sea, fourth watch, it's in the middle of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and they cried out, for they all said, "Saw him?" They were troubled, and immediately he talked with them and said, "Be of good cheer, it is I; do not be afraid." And he went up into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed. Now, if you read also in John chapter six where it tells the story, it says the wind ceased. The storm stopped and they were immediately at their destination. When did Jesus come to them? Middle of the sea, middle of the night. What were they doing when he came? They were rowing with all their might. And then he surprised them. He got in the boat and suddenly they were at their destination. They were doing what they could do humanly to cooperate with God and then he performed a miracle. You know, everybody that God ever called in the Bible was busy doing something. Gideon was threshing wheat when the angel came to him. Amos was gathering sycamore fruit. Elisha was out plowing with twelve yoke of oxen. Peter and and Andrew and Simon, uh, rather and John and James were um, fishing or cleaning their nets. But they were faithfully engaged in doing something when God called them. God does not want us to just sit back and say, when's the Holy Spirit going to come? He wants us to do what we can do. Now, can the Lord use people that are not completely baptized in the Holy Spirit? What do you think? Yeah. Can the Lord use those people to get other people saved? Should you and I wait until we're sure we have the baptism of the Holy Spirit before we start sharing what we do have? Did Jesus send the apostles out preaching and the disciples more than once before Pentecost? You all with me? Did Jesus send the apostles out preaching before Pentecost? Did they come back and say, even the spirits and the devils are subject unto us? Were people being healed? Were miracles being wrought? And conversions were taking place. And then just before the cross, Jesus turns to Peter And he says, Peter, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith does not fail. And when you are converted... What? What do you mean when I'm converted? I've been out. I'm an itinerant evangelist. I've been out preaching. I've seen miracles, signs and wonders and healings and demons cast out. What do you mean when you're converted? I've got the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying, oh, not like you're going to have it. You still aren't thoroughly converted why would jesus send out unconverted apostles what were they arguing about in the upper room which of them was the greatest and judas was arguing about mary's gift and all the disciples were they were bickering and they were striving and they didn't want to wash each other's feet because they thought that'll be too menial And yet, those were the leaders of his church. He was using them even in that capacity because, here, get this, working for God with what they had was part of their conversion process and preparing them to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So while we are working and praying for the Holy Spirit, do not become discouraged if you don't feel like you have the fullness of God's power now. The disciples had the same problem. That ought to encourage you. Some people don't feel like they're worthy. I was reading in the Bible in the book of Numbers. You know, the baptism of the Holy Spirit didn't just happen in the New Testament. First example of the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens in the Old Testament. In Numbers chapter 11, God told Moses, You're organizing this nation. You're trying to administer justice and delegate all these responsibilities by yourself, and that's not wise. God counseled Moses through his father-in-law Jethro. He said, you've got to get some helpers. God said, I tell you what, you gather the 70 elders from Israel before the tabernacle, and I will take of the spirit that is on you, and I will put it on them. How many of you remember this? And so they all gathered together, except when they took the roll call, two of them didn't show up. Their names were Eldad and Medad. Easy to remember those names. They didn't feel worthy. And so they were out in the camp. So God then did something miraculous. He took the spirit from Moses, not that Moses had any less, but he took the spirit that Moses had and he gave it to these 68 elders and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to prophesy. Now prophesy doesn't mean they began to tell you, you know, the day and the hour of the second coming or they didn't begin to. You know, tell you uh, what the weather's going to be tomorrow. or It wasn't that kind of prophecy. Prophesy means to preach, to talk about the wonders of God. And then Eldad and Medad, they didn't even come, but God sent the Spirit to them too. They were off by themselves and they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and they weren't even at the right meeting because they didn't think they were worthy. God took the Spirit from Moses and he gave it to the others for the leading of the people of Israel. Now, doesn't God take the Spirit of Jesus and give it to the apostles at Pentecost? How many of you know the story in um, 2 Kings chapter 2 where Elisha goes to heaven in a chariot, a whirlwind? Can I turn there with you real quick? Talking about what we can do to experience... Victory. Now, if you know me and you've listened to me for any length of time, you've heard me talk about this story because it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Hey, while we're waiting, while you're turning, I'm going to read you a quote I read a minute ago about there's no limit to the usefulness of one. You know, it really changed the life of Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody. Somebody said to him one time, "The world has yet to see what the Almighty God can do with, for, through, in, and by." a man wholly and fully yielded to Him and to His service. And that's speaking of women too. The world has yet to see what the Almighty God can and will do for, through, in, and by a man wholly and fully yielded to Him and His service. And Moody, when he first heard that statement, he said, By God's grace, I want to be that man. The world has yet to see what God can do through you. There is no limit to the usefulness of one who lays self aside. If you could have the spirit of Moses, wouldn't you want that? What if you could have the spirit and the power of Elijah? I just told you to turn to Second um, Kings chapter 2. I'm going to go to the first verse. And it came to pass, when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. And Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. Now, word had come to the the, uh, prophets, the sons of the prophets, that I am going to take Elijah to heaven miraculously. He's not going to die, but he's going to be caught up to me like Enoch was. How they got that word, I don't know, but it circulated all among the sons of the prophets because before Elijah goes to heaven, Elijah knew it too. He said, I want to go among the different schools of the prophets and I want to encourage them before I'm caught up to heaven. And it says here that when the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came to Elisha, they said to him, Do you know what the Lord said? That he's going to take your master away from being over your head today? He said, Yes, I know it. Keep silent. In other words, I'm happy to serve him. Well, then Elijah, after he encouraged the sons of the prophets that were there at Bethel, he said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. I will not leave you. So he stuck by him like glue and they went to Jericho together. And the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho, they came to Elisha and they said the same thing. Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? He said, yes, I know it. Hold your peace. Keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me to Jordan. And he said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, Now, do you got your Bibles open? Can you see your Bibles? It's too dark. Let me tell you what it says. I will not leave you. Now, this is the third time. By the way, in case you don't know the story, Elisha is about to be filled with a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And I want to tell you one of the keys to being filled with that double portion of the spirit. He said, I will not leave you. I will not leave you. I will not leave you. I will go wherever you go. I am your follower. You see, Elisha was the apprentice of Elijah. Now, just for clarity, Elisha means my God is salvation or Savior. Elijah, names are very similar, it's Elohim Jehovah. It means my God is Jehovah. Elijah in this story is like a type of Christ. Before Jesus ascended to heaven, he went and he, he, after his resurrection, he ministered several times to the, the apostles. He met with them to open the scriptures. Every time he met with them, he opened the scriptures. What prepared them for receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? Not only were they in one place for ten days together praying, so they were praying together, they put aside their differences, they'd forgiven each other. I really appreciated uh, Sister Paige's talk this morning about making room for the Holy Spirit by Dealing with the specifics, and that might mean bitterness or forgiveness in your heart for someone else. You know, the only criteria that Jesus gives in the Lord's Prayer at the end, the only follow-up, says, If you don't forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father in Heaven forgive you your trespasses. So I think just right there, one of the core criteria to being filled with the baptism of the Spirit is forgiving each other. Amen? And, and having that Spirit. So, um, he says, I'm going wherever you go. I'm not going to let you out of my sight. He didn't want them to slip away without seeing him. But Jesus appeared for 40 days among the disciples. We talk about the 10 days of the upper room, but what happened 40 days earlier? Every time Christ appeared to them, he opened to them the scriptures. You see him on the road to Emmaus? He opened to them the scriptures. He met them in the upper room? He opened to them the scriptures. He met them by the sea when they all went fishing? He opened to them the Scriptures. He was giving them Bible study after Bible study after Bible study, preparing them to receive the Holy Spirit. And so getting these practical studies is part of that preparation. He said, I will not leave you. Periodically, um, I'm asked to do a wedding. Uh, you'd think I do more weddings than I do. Um, I think I do probably three times as many funerals as I do Weddings which is fine with me because weddings make me more nervous than funerals do. Um, And I think another reason that I'm probably not asked very often, I think he may have done that just to get more light in the room. Yeah, so you can maybe see your Bibles better. Then again, it could just be blinding you. But but, uh, um, I think one reason that I don't get asked to do weddings is because my name is Bachelor. And I think I think a lot of ladies are superstitious about having the word bachelor written on their marriage certificate. I've got to sign it, you know. Though <laughs> when I do weddings, I always like to go to the Book of Ruth, and you know they are in Ruth chapter one, verse sixteen, where Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, "You can go home." And and uh, Orpa went home. I almost said Oprah. <laughs> and uh, And Ruth said, uh, do not ask me to stop following you or to cease from going after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people are my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, there I'll die and I'll be buried. God do so to me and more also if anything but death separates you and me. Talk about a tenacious, relentless, determined decision to follow. How did the children of Israel get from Egypt to the promised land? They had to follow. How did Peter get out of prison? The angel broke his chains, but he said, Now you've got something to do. You've got to follow me. When Jesus got in the boat, they were rowing. You've got to do what you can do. So Elisha said, "All right, I want to get the Holy Spirit. I want a double portion of Elisha's Elijah's spirit." He said, "I'm not letting you out of my sight." He said, "I will not leave you. Have you ever been tempted to stop following Jesus even temporarily? I'm going to follow you on Sabbath, but not the other six days of the week. Or I'll follow you when I get home from school, but it's kind of tough at school. I pray that we could all have the kind of determination where we would say like Elisha, I will not leave you. So they went on to the Jordan River together. And 50 men, verse 7, I'm in Second Kings chapter 2, verse 7, 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance, while two of them stood by the Jordan, Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah took his mantle and he rolled it up and he struck the water, And it was divided this way and that way, so the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And so it was, when they had crossed over, that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I might do for you before I am taken away from you. All right, now I'm getting ahead of myself. What does the Jordan River represent? If you look at the old hymnals, you look at the new hymnals, I don't know if there's any computer program where you can do this, but you go to a hymnal and you look up the word Jordan, you're going to find the Jordan River appears a lot in the hymns. The old hymn writers had pretty good theology, and they knew the Jordan represented the boundary between the wilderness and the promised land. And most people cannot get from the wilderness into the promised land without crossing the Jordan. You don't get from lost to saved without crossing the Jordan. You've got to go through the baptism. I told you about Naaman when we talked earlier. It's the lowest point on earth. The word Jordan it means descending because it goes from way above sea level in the mountains of Lebanon down to the dead sea lowest point on earth crossing the jordan how did the children of israel get into the promised land the ark went out into the the priests put their feet in the water they were carrying the ark the river stopped flooding and the children of israel crossed over because of a miracle it's interesting two times there was a miracle in parting the jordan river one time the miracle happens, when the ark... What, what's in the ark? The law. The law is there. The other time the miracle happens, with a robe. What do you think that robe of Elijah represented? If Elijah represents Jesus, what does the robe of Elijah represent? It represents, the, yeah, the righteousness of Jesus. What's the only thing that Christ left behind before he died? They gambled for his clothes, but his robe in particular was without seam, and so they didn't tear it up. That blood-stained robe of Jesus represents, that's what covers our sin. The brothers of Joseph, what did they present to their father to cover their sin? When they sold their brother as a slave, what did they present to cover their sin to their father? Blood-stained robe. Isn't that right? That robe represents the righteousness of Christ. What do you and I present to our Father in order to get the Holy Spirit and to be forgiven? It's the blood-stained robe of Jesus. Can all of us offer that? Can all of us claim the merits of Christ? You know, I think it's interesting. Have you ever noticed um, when Jacob stole his brother's blessing, Jacob got the blessing that belonged to the firstborn, The way that he got it is he put on his brother's clothes. And the father, who was blind, he felt him. He had that lambskin on his hands. He smelled the aroma off of Esau's robes and he gave Jacob the blessing that did not belong to him because of the clothes of his brother, the firstborn. You and I get the blessing that the father gives to Jesus when we, by faith, put on the robes of Christ. How did the prodigal son... How was he welcomed back into the Father's house? He gave him the best robe. Right? God is offering that to everybody right now. You just accept it by faith. So Elijah, he takes off his mantle. They're standing at the Jordan River. The Jordan's flooded. You know, it was probably springtime because other times of the year you could wait across the Jordan in certain places. It used to have more water than it does now, for one thing. But um, probably springtime, which is, by the way, the time of year that Jesus died and ascended to heaven. Elijah takes off his mantle, and he rolls it up, and any of you ever rat-tail someone with a towel? I can tell by that sinister laugh. (laughs) Yeah, I went to military school, and you get a whole lot of boys that uh, are in one dormitory together, and you end up with some pretty fierce rat-tail fights, and you can come away looking like you got measles, because you get snapped and popped so many times. And, and you know reason, a towel, you roll it up, you wet one end of it. And I'm not encouraging you to try this. I'm explaining what I'm talking about. You roll up a towel and you, know, you wet one end of it and you pop it and the end of it cracks like a whip and it can really get your attention. But uh, I got so good, I could take a fly off the wall with a towel. Yeah, not too much spare time. But in my mind, when I hear... The Bible says that he took off his mantle and he rolled it up. I picture Elijah rolling it up and in just dramatic biblical proportions, he goes, Crack! And he snaps it against the water or slaps it somehow on the water, but it's something dramatic. He struck the waters, it says. All of a sudden, it performed the same miracle that had not happened in hundreds of years. The same power of God had always been there, but they hadn't seen it in hundreds of years. All of a sudden, the waters stopped running. They parted. And not only did the waters part, but now the ground is dry below them. And they were able to cross over on dry ground. Now, what does that mean? Well, usually when the water runs out of a bed within a few minutes, it's still muddy and you're going to get dirty crossing over. They were able to cross over and come up clean on the other side because of that robe. And so then Elijah asks Elisha, a very important question. I'm in verse nine, second Kings two, verse nine. And it was so that when they had crossed over, that Elijah, and after they got out of the water, it resumed running. Elijah says to Elisha, Ask what I might do for you before I'm taken away from you. And Elisha said, Now wait a second. What would you ask for if you could ask Elijah for a favor? How many of you have read about the power of Elijah in the Bible? This is the same prophet that prayed and it stopped raining for three and a half years because he prayed. He prayed again and it thundered and poured. He prayed and fire came down from heaven. How many times? Three times. Let me count them for you. King wanted to have Elijah arrested. This is in chapter 1 of 2 Kings. And he sent 50 soldiers to arrest Elijah. Elijah had just told the king of Israel, um, you're going to die on your bed of sickness because you're sending to Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, as though there's no prophet in Israel. So the king said, who do you think he was? You go arrest him. So they go to arrest Elijah, and he's sitting up on a hill meditating and they said, man of God, come down. He might have been on some kind of rocky knoll where they just said, come down as opposed to them going up. And he said, if I'm a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and burn up you and your 50 soldiers. That's all he had to say. All of a sudden, from a cloudless sky, this fire rains down like a great arc welder on this captain and his 50 soldiers and their horses and just vaporizes and there's nothing but charred bones and carcasses. Well, the king back at the palace is wondering what's taking his guard so long to get Elijah. word starts to dribble in that it seems like something bad overcame that contingent of soldiers. He said, send another 50. That's a stubborn king. That one would have been enough for me. He sends another captain with 50 soldiers. They go to arrest Elijah and they say the same thing. I would have tried a different speech. He says the same thing. Man of God, come down at once. The king wants to see you. he says, If I'm a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and burn you and your fifty up. Again, second time. Whew. Fire comes down. You can hear the crackling and the screaming and all and there's a smoldering remains. Now there's a hundred carcasses. Human. And another hundred horses, if they were all on horses. And the king gets word from messengers. Boy, you've never seen anything like this. Fire came down. It's burnt up 100 of your soldiers so far. And they didn't bring Elijah. He said, send another 50. It's no wonder that king died. He was just proud and stubborn. But now you're starting to feel sorry for the army. So this captain and his 50 soldiers, he comes and he takes a different approach. He gets off his horse and he kneels down. He says, oh man of God. I'm a soldier. I'm paraphrasing. The king has told me to come and to escort you back to the palace. The other soldiers, you know, he's. I mean, what would you do? You're surrounded by the smoldering ruins of your, your companions. He says, will you please have mercy on me? And he said, all right, since you've asked nicely, I'll go with you. <laughs> so he didn't burn him up. And then the third time the fire came down from heaven is when it came down on Mount Carmel, Right? So, unless you know another time, I'm forgetting. Elijah three times prayed, and fire came down from heaven. It's not the only time fire came down in the Bible. But this is a man who's got tremendous power. And he now says, Is there something I can do for you? Kings tremble at his word. Is there something I can do for you before I'm taken away from you? He's getting ready to get picked up by a limousine from heaven. He's got connections. Really? I mean, what connections could you have better than Elijah? And he says, There's something I can do for you. What would you ask for if you could ask for anything? Now, be honest with me. Have any of you ever fantasized that you would like to see a limousine on the side of the road with a flat tire, and you're a good Samaritan, and you pull over, and you say, Let me help you, and you help fix their flat tire? And then they roll down their tinted window, and they look to the right and the left, and it's Bill Gates. And he said, you know, I was really in a pickle, and it's, I'm so glad that you stopped. Here's a blank check. You fill in as many zeros as you want. <laughs> it's fun thinking about it, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you could hardly bankrupt them. <laughs> what would you ask for Or if, if you wasted your youth as I did watching silly stories of Arabian Nights or I Dream of Genie, and, and you fantasized if I had a genie and I could rub the bottle and he said, three wishes, what do you want? I used to fantasize what I would ask for. You always hear these stories about everybody wasting their wishes. You know what I'm talking about? They ask for these really bizarre things and then they lose all their wishes You've probably heard me tell the story about the three guys on a deserted island. Yeah, they were. Uh, you have heard me tell the story. You don't want to hear it again. <laughs> you want to hear it? Yeah. You want to hear it again? All right. The yays have it. These three guys are stranded on some deserted island in the South Pacific, and there's nothing there but a handful of coconut trees and water and sand. And they're there for years. And they're just barely living off, you know, a few clams and fish and coconuts, coconuts, coconuts every day. And they're just so tired of it. And all they can do is just sit there, lean against the tree, try and find some shade and stare out, hoping for rescue. And then one day they notice that uh, as the swell is coming in, there's some shiny object out on the water. And they're so excited for anything new, they're wondering what this could be. And they, they get up and they walk from the coconut trees down onto the beach It gets closer, and they kind of walk out in the water, and pretty soon the waves bring in this floating, shiny object, and they all kind of seize it at the same time. And out pops a genie. It's a true story. (laughs) And the genie looks around. He says, well, this is odd. You know, normally there's somebody that touches the bottle, and then I give them three wishes. But since there's three of you, you each get one wish. And so one of them doesn't hesitate. He figures, well, if it's a real genie, it must be... He's really going to help me out. He said, I know what I want right away. He said, I've been on this island so long and all I can think about is food. I am so tired of coconuts, coconuts, everyday coconuts. He said, I want to be at the most elaborate smorgasbord in New York City and be able to eat all I want. Poof, he disappeared. And the second one, he said, I know what I want. He says, "All I can think about is cooling off." He says, "Every day just baking out here in this sun, hot, humid sun." I just keep dreaming of snow skiing in Aspen, Colorado. I want to be snow skiing in Aspen, Colorado. Poof, he disappears. And then the third one—he was not the, the sharpest of the three. He said, uh, "Wow." He said, "So I get one wish." Jeanie said, "One wish." And he thought and he thought and he said. I'm not altogether sure what I should ask for. Ooh, wish my friends were here. <laughs> I got a few more I can tell you, but it's probably not in the spirit of the event. <laughs> but if you could ask for anything, what would you ask for? If a king asks you, what do you want? One time there was a man who had performed heroically in Alexander the Great's army. And he was brought before the king. And the king says, I'm proud of you. I've heard about your bravery. He says, you go to my treasure and you ask for a gift. So he went to the treasure of Alexander the Great. And he asked for this phenomenal sum of money. And the treasure said, wait a second. And he went back to the king. He says, you know what he's asking for? He was asking for this very significant reward. And it was a lot. And the king said, wow. And then he smiled. And Alexander said, you know, I like him. Because he compliments me. He thinks I'm both rich and he thinks I'm generous. So is God less rich and generous than Alexander the Great? If God says to you, ask. Did Jesus ever say that? Elijah says to Elisha, Ask. God said to Solomon, ask. What did Solomon ask for? Well, we say wisdom, and actually if you read it in Chronicles, it says wisdom. If you read it in 1 Kings, he's asking for an understanding heart. But really, when you boil it down, you know what he's praying for. One of the fruits of the Spirit is wisdom. You read about the seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 11, verse 2. Wisdom. The Spirit of Wisdom. James says, if any of you lack understanding, let him ask, wisdom of God who gives to all men liberally. And so Solomon was praying for the Holy Spirit. Isn't that right? And Jesus, when he talked about, if you've got a son and he asks for a loaf of bread, will you give him a uh, stone? If he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? If he asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? Luke adds one more thing. He says an egg and a scorpion. And then Jesus, the only specific thing that Jesus tells us we should be asking for in that illustration, he said, how much more will your Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit to those that... What do they got to do? Ask. He says, ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, and the Lord will send bright flashing clouds. He wants us to ask him, how often? If the Lord fills us with the Holy Spirit on a daily basis, then we ought to be praying fervently for the Holy Spirit every day. That's above and beyond baptism of the Spirit or the latter rain experience. And so of all the things that Elisha could ask for, what does he ask for? He's greedy. He said, ask what I might do for you before I'm taken away from you. And Elisha said, please... Let a double portion of your Spirit be upon me. So he said, You've asked, Elijah said, You've asked a hard thing. And the word hard thing doesn't mean hard as in difficult for God. He's saying, You've asked a big thing. So he said, Nevertheless, if, all right, what does if mean? Is there a criteria for the fulfillment of this promise? Is there a criteria for the fulfillment of your receiving the Holy Spirit? If you ask, but there's more. If you see me when I am taken from you, it will be so for you. But if not, it will not be so. All right. so the criteria for Elisha to get a double portion of Elijah's spirit is you must see me when I'm taken up. So it happened as they continued on and talked. Let me ask you a question. Let's suppose that I tell you... um, Last night, my family went to... Uh, this is what I was going to say, but I've changed my mind. My family got in late. I hadn't eaten since breakfast. So it was night. We walked to a nearby restaurant and, uh, to get something. On the way to the restaurant, there was a man who had stationed himself along the street. He uh, had a spot staked out, and he was essentially asking us for spare change. And you know, I don't know if you're like me, but when you see somebody like that, uh, I used to panhandle. So I've got a lot of first-hand experience in panhandling. I know a lot of the tricks, I could tell you. Um, Sometimes I really was panhandling for food, and sometimes I was wanting cigarette money, and sometimes I wanted alcohol money, or who knows. But I understand the, the science of panhandling. Some people are sincere. They really are in need and they're going to put it to good means. Sometimes you can give people some money and they're just going to go out and get drunk and they get killed. I've got one friend. He gave someone we knew $5. He drank and then he cut his wrists. And he always felt kind of bad that he gave them the money to do it. So we're always a little conflicted. You know what I'm talking about? You want to help people, really help them. And so I told the guy, I said, look, I said, we're going to get something to eat. My wife gave him her burrito. He said, I'm hungry. She said, here. She had a burrito left over from the airport. She said, here's my burrito. And he took it. And I said, if you're here when we come back, I said, I'll have something for you. We came back not too long after, walked right by the spot. He was gone. If he had lingered, he would have had something. Now, if Jesus said to you, I don't know exactly when, but I'm going to start walking off into the desert. And somewhere along the way, God's going to come and He's going to pick me up and take me to heaven. If you see me when I'm taken up into heaven, you're going to receive a double portion of my spirit. How would you follow? How closely would you follow? Would you let Him out of your sight? How many of you would be afraid to blink? If you had to sneeze, have you ever tried to sneeze with your eyes open? Don't. You're thinking, pop out. (laughs) That's what my grandmother said. (laughs) It must be true. She also told me if I went swimming after I ate, I'd have cramps and drown. (laughs) But um, I I wouldn't want to sneeze. I'd be afraid that in a moment, if I looked over my shoulder and looked back, he'd be gone and I would have missed it how carefully would you fix your eyes upon Him that you might receive a double portion of the Spirit? Because if He's, gone, if he's taken up and you don't see Him, you'll lose Him. So what's one of the most important criteria to being filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit and being victorious? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Seeing, and this is one of the rare times I'm going to use the NIV. Seeing then that we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race that is set before us with endurance, fixing our eyes upon Jesus. The word fixing, it means like you focus, like a sniper looking through the scope. Fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I think one of the keys to being filled with the Holy Spirit is you become like what you look at. How are we to look at Jesus? an ongoing stare <laughs> gazing at Him. You know that song? "Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus? Hey, why don't we sing the chorus? Okay. Eyes upon Jesus Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strange dim in the light of his glory and grace. How many of you know all the verses? We're not going to do it right now. I just wondered. How many of you know all? everyone sings the chorus? That song's got some good verses in it. Even if you don't know the melody, you ought to read them. But the idea is, keep your vision fixed upon Jesus. God said to Elisha, If you see me when I am taken up from you, it will be so. If not, it will not be so. How many of you would like to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Then set Jesus before you in everything you do. There was a man, the great blondin, Very famous tightrope walker. He did it all. Not only did he go across Niagara Falls, he walked across canyons, he walked between skyscrapers. The guy was incredible. The great Blondin. You can look him up on Wikipedia. Don't do it right now, because I know you have the capacity. I see some of you, just always everything you're checking. (laughs) One time when he was going across Niagara Falls, he... um, he actually went across with a wheelbarrow, and um, he came back again. And then he asked, you know, first he went across with a balancing pole, and others had done that before, and that's incredible. And you know, the, the water's just storming down below. And then went across with a wheelbarrow, and he came back, and he said, "How many of you believe that I could go across with somebody in the wheelbarrow?" Everybody raised their hand. We believe you can do it. We believe. And he said, "Okay, who'll get in the wheelbarrow?" And the only one who would do it was his manager. So his manager got in the wheelbarrow and he pushed them across Niagara Falls. And you know, Niagara rushed more back then than it does now. They've dammed a lot of the flow since then for hydroelectric power. But it used to roar a lot more. And the steam and the vapor, not steam, the the mist would just uh, explode all around. But when he crossed... People would say, how come you don't get distracted? Aren't you terrified when you look at the water boiling below and you hear the thunderous noise around you and all the steam or the vapors swirling around? He said, I don't look at any of that. He says, when I take off across the rope, he said, I have a silver star that I've erected at the other end. And he said, I keep my eyes fixed on the star. How are we going to make it? You've got to keep your eyes fixed on the goal. A Christian is a follower of Christ. If you want to be a Christian, don't look at Christians. Now, I hope you live a life people can look at. you know the difference? Don't look at other people. Someone will ultimately let you down. I've got some heroes. Some of the, most of my heroes are the dead ones because they are home free. What I mean by that now is their record is sealed. Someone said one time, the best way to measure a tree is when it's down. You know what I'm saying? Once a person's life's over and they fought the good fight... Well, that's, those are the ones I pick for my heroes. But you'll find sometimes people will let you down. So you live a life people can look at, but don't be looking at all, all the other people because ultimately someone will disappoint you. But Jesus will never disappoint you. You keep your eyes fixed on him. Christ said, any man puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of the kingdom. Do you know how Elijah called Elisha? God told Elijah when he was up on Mount Sinai, said among the things he told him, he said, I want you to go find Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and I want you to pick him as prophet in your place. I want you to train him and disciple him because he is going to be the prophet of Israel when you're gone. Part of good leadership is training your replacements. We train all kinds of replacements at Amazing Facts for our evangelists through the AFCO program. We've got crops of evangelists coming up all the time. But, um, Elijah finally found Elisha. He was out plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. He walked up to him. He took his famous mantle off his shoulders and he put it on the shoulders of Elisha. Elisha knew what that meant, that he was being called to fill that uniform. He said, first, let me kiss my mother and my father goodbye. And then you know what he did? He took his farm implements... He broke them in pieces and made a fire. He slew the oxen that he was plowing with and he offered them as a sacrifice, basically saying, I'm burning the ships, I'm never turning back. You put your hand to your plow and you don't look back. A man one time was uh, walking through a freshly fallen snow and he saw there were some boys that were arguing with each other on their way home from school. And you know, kids, they just got into some kind of a fight over something dumb. And he knew they just needed a distraction. The fight hadn't gotten too severe yet. He said, hey, "Boys, I don't know which of you is the fastest. No, I'm faster. I'm faster." He said, "I'll tell you what. We're going to have a race, but this is a different kind of race." He said, "See that meadow there with all the snow across it? It's freshly fallen snow, they? Yeah, we see it." So I'm going to go around. I'll go to the other side of that meadow where the fence post is. And he said, "I'm going to count to three and I'll shout. I want you to start running." Whichever one of you gets to me with the straightest tracks in the snow wins. They thought, well, that was intriguing. So he went across the field and he counted one, two, three, and he said, go. They all took off running. And one boy who was in the middle, he was running along through the snow and he couldn't go very fast because it was deep. And he kept looking to the right, looking to the left to see where his friends were progressing. And he was checking out their tracks. But every time he turned to the right or the left, he turned, too. Have you ever tried to ride a bicycle on a straight line while you're looking over your shoulder? Try that sometime. Just make sure there's no cars around. (laughs) The other boy, he kept looking over his shoulder, examining his own tracks. And every time he did, he'd veer. The third boy, who won the race, he kept his eyes on the man, and he made a beeline, as they say. If you want to live a straight life, you've got to fix your eyes on Jesus. You know why a river is crooked? Because it takes the path of least resistance. Do you know why some lives are crooked? Because they're looking for a life with little resistance. If you want to live a straight life, you're going to run into some resistance. But if you fix your eyes on Jesus, you can do the impossible. So they're walking through the desert. Elijah said to Elisha, if you see me. And I like the way this is worded. I'm almost done. We're going to have a break here. It happened as they continued. I'm in verse 11. And they talked. What are they doing? They're communing together. Suddenly, a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire. Suddenly. You know what it says in Acts chapter 2 before the Holy Spirit poured out? They're communing with the Lord in the upper room and then suddenly... Would you like me to give you a schedule on when the Holy Spirit's going to come down and latter rain power? I can't. It's going to happen suddenly. I Would God it would happen now. I don't know when He's going to choose to do it. But I think it's going to surprise everybody. I suspect it's going to happen as we're communing with the Lord, as we're in prayer together. Suddenly, chariots of fire appeared with horses of fire. These Shekinah glory-filled chariots and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. This vortex, tornado-like glory came down and picked him up and started taking him up into heaven. And when Elisha saw it, he cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. The power of Israel was not its army. It was its prophet. Prophet can be pretty powerful in an army. How many of you remember when someone tried to arrest Elisha and he prayed a whole army blind? If you got a double portion of Elijah's spirit, you're better off having one spirit-filled prophet than 10,000 armies. Hezekiah prayed and the prophet Elijah prayed and 185,000 soldiers died overnight. So when Elisha said the chariot of Israel and the fire thereof, he wasn't kidding. Separated the two of them. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them into pieces. Now did Elisha see it? Notice in verse 12, what are the first verses, first words? Are you there, Second Kings twelve? Now Elisha saw it. What was the criteria to being filled with the Holy Spirit? A double portion? Something he saw. Jesus said one of the problems with his generation was the blind were leading the blind, and sight represents spiritual discernment. He took hold of his own clothes and he tore them in two pieces. And he took up the mantle that had fallen from Elijah. Now, you know, maybe I've got too active an imagination, but it doesn't say that Elijah set his mantle down on the ground. It says it fell from him. And I think that as Elijah went up to heaven in a fiery chariot, I can just picture... Here the angels, the heavens are parting, he can see the celestial glory and the stars shining through the, the sky and and the, the angels are singing and the music is wafting down and, and Elijah he looks down, he sees Elisha drifting out of sight, and all of a sudden Elijah says to the angels that are there attending him, the the chauffeurs of his limousine. Can you guys put it in part for just a moment? And they say, What? We got this parade, God told us to pick you up. What do you mean? Don't you want to go to heaven? He says, Just hang on a second. And he takes off his mantle and he tosses it down to Elisha. Because now he's going to be the prophet. He says, Okay, you can go now. And they resume taking him up to heaven. It may not have been that dramatic, but I can't prove it was, and you can't prove it wasn't. So it makes for a better telling of the story. I just want you to picture, I want you to picture that it was conscious. That Elijah handed the mantle down. And he took up the mantle that had fallen from Elijah. Now, did you get that? Elijah goes to heaven. Elisha kneels down. He cries. He prays. What does he do with his own clothes? He tears them and he takes up the mantle of Elijah. What does clothing represent? Well, character it depends on whose clothes, right? All of our clothes, or our righteousness, is like what? Filthy rags. So he tears his own, and he reaches out and he takes up the mantle that had fallen from Elijah. And then he goes back to the Jordan River. And he takes it, the mantle and he strikes the waters and he says, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? In other words, I am claiming your promise. I saw it. I now need to see the power that you promised. And when he struck the water... It was divided to the right and the left. And the sons of the prophets who saw him said, Surely the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came and they bowed down before him. He was filled with a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. You know what the last prophecy is in the Old Testament? Malachi chapter 4. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. One of the last things it says was, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. And then Jesus, speaking of John the Baptist, He says, If you can receive it, Elijah is coming and Elijah has come. In other words, Elijah came in John the Baptist. He said, Surely Elijah will come too. So, in other words, the fulfillment of that prophecy of Elijah coming is dual. Who's the first one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah? Elisha. Right? Who's the second one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah? What the angel said to John the Baptist's father, it says, He will go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah. No question about it. John the Baptist. Jesus said, John the Baptist. But is there going to be a third group who's filled with the spirit and the power of Elijah? In the same way God used John the Baptist and 12 apostles to get the world ready for the first coming of Jesus. This is very important, friends. God is going to have, I believe, an army of Elijahs and 144,000 apostles that are going to get the world ready. Not 12 apostles, 12 times 12,000, right? Right? that are going to get the world ready. There'll be a great multitude converted through the influence of them. They'll be filled with the Holy Spirit as the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit in the upper room. Not just the apostles, there were 120, right? And then a great multitude was converted. There's going to be an army of Elijah's that are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. An army of last day apostles, so to speak. And then you're going to see a great wave of conversions in the last days. If we do what the apostles did, if we do what Elisha did and we relentlessly follow Jesus and we commune with him and we keep our eyes fixed upon him, how did Jesus say people are going to be drawn to him? He said, if I am lifted up. What does that mean? Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then he goes on and says, whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And Elijah said to Elisha, if I am lifted up, And you see it, you'll receive a double portion of the Holy Spirit. Are you beginning to tune into what I'm saying? If we get a generation that sees Christ lifted up, that realizes Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and that totally is what fills them with the Spirit, that's the group that's going to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a double portion of the Holy Spirit. Do you want that? And you know what? Just as a footnote to this section... Elisha did twice as many miracles as Elijah. He had double the Holy Spirit, so to speak. Maybe then didn't bring fire down from heaven, but there's more about the miracles of Elisha than the miracles of Elijah. Twice as many. I'd like to have that spirit. How about you? This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC. A supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.